Would you join me in a word of prayer this morning? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship You this morning. You are the triune God, one God in three persons, forever blessed, forever happy, forever glorious. And we thank You that You are God, that there is no God but You, that You alone are the Maker of heaven and earth. We thank You that You made us, that every moment of every instant of our lives we are upheld by Your power, that every breath we breathe is a gift from You, that every instance that our cells respirate and that our body functions is because Your power holds reality together. Lord, all things are upheld by Your powerful Word. Lord, we praise You because You are such a great and awesome God. And even when we think about You, our thoughts, they can't even get to the fringes of Your majesty and greatness. And even, Lord, after a million uh, ages in heaven someday, we will still just be at the, the foothills of Your majesty. And so, God... You are awesome. And we confess, Lord, as we had earlier, that we do not love You as we ought. We do not think of You as we ought. But we praise You that part of Your awesome greatness is Your mercy and Your kindness. And that You loved us so much that You, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, so humbled Yourself that You took on human flesh that the infinite limited Himself in the finite and somehow came to dwell among us, to walk among us, to suffer for us, to die for our sins, so that now we who are lost can be forgiven and to be brought into the family of God. We thank You for the fact that You've made us born again through the Holy Spirit, that You've given us a new life and a new faith in You. Lord Jesus, thank You for the church. Thank You for this body of believers that we're not saved just one by one, but we're saved one by one and then brought into a family. And God, I pray that You would help us to experience at South Shore Baptist Church the joy of being a family. Lord, keep us from just going to church. Help us, Lord, to really care about each other. Help us, Lord, to reach out to one another when we hear of those who are hurting in our midst. Lord, we don't want to go to church. We want to be the church. Lord, we pray that You would purify us as a body. God, spare us from hypocrisy. Lord, help us to live what we say. God, we pray for holiness in our body. Lord, thank You for Vacation Bible School this week. Thank You, Lord, that... I guess thank you that we had to close the doors as too many kids. Thank you, Lord, for how clearly the Gospel was presented to those children and workers. Lord, we thank you for the way you're blessing the congregation, allowing us to be engaged in home missions. Lord, we pray for the church around the world. We pray especially, Lord, for believers and the people in Israel and Lebanon and Syria, Lord, just a broken part of the world. God, we pray for peace. We pray for the peace of Israel. We pray, Lord, that uh, the Christians who are in that nation, the true Israel, would rise up and would pray and would be uh, those who would work for peace and for reconciliation and forgiveness. We know, Lord, there will be no healing there except through Christ, except until Palestinians and Jews and people come together around the blood of Christ who reconciles people to Himself. God, we pray for Your work around the world, for missionaries that our church supports, God, today, that You would strengthen them and encourage them in their labors. And now, Lord, here we come to Your Word. We come eagerly and expectantly. We believe this is the Word of God, that it is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is from You, that it is authoritative for our lives. And so, God, as we open it, we just pray that You would speak to us. We long to hear from the living God. And so, God, speak through Your Word this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, today, uh, 
there's no children's church today. Uh, all, everyone is fried from VBS. So basically that's the situation. So we thought we'd share our exhaustion with you and uh, just leave the kids in the service. So, uh, you know, kids are wiggly. If your kids get wiggly, that's okay. I don't care. I'm just going to keep preaching. Uh, if they need to go downstairs, you know, there's overflow rooms. There's places they can run around. So we're just going to be real loose today. I mean, it's summer, so just go with it. I think there's little things in the back they can color on. So whatever, you'll figure it out. You know, they can vandalize the pews, whatever. I mean, we're just... It's very loose. Uh, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to uh, the end of the chapter. It's on page 1030 if you're using a pew Bible. Luke chapter 11. And seriously, if your kids get antsy in the middle of the service, I mean, you can just walk out or whatever you need to do. If you need to take care of them, I, it, seriously, it does not bother me. I just plow ahead. I do what I do. Luke chapter 11, page 1030. Let me just read the text. It says, When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people! Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you! Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose Him fiercely and to besiege Him with questions, waiting to catch Him in something He might say. Uh, last Sunday, we talked about the dangers of unbelief. Remember that? We looked at the pitfalls of doubt and skepticism. 
uh, we saw that, you know, it's kind of easy to be a skeptic. You can always find another reason to doubt whatever proof is offered to you. Uh, you know, sometimes religion is called a crutch. I think skepticism is a crutch. I think it's an easy way to deal with issues because you just always say, well, it could be this. Well, there's this. It could be that. It doesn't prove it. And so we looked at the dangers of unbelief. And, of course, the greatest danger of unbelief is, you know, what if it's true? What if there is a heaven to be gained? What if there is a hell to be lost? And what if I'm not dealing with those significant heaven and hell eternal issues because I'm in this kind of uh, ivory tower of skepticism and doubt where I can always question and always doubt? So that's the dangers of unbelief that we looked at last Sunday. But could it be that there are not also serious dangers in being a believer? We know that irreligion is a great risk. But could it be that there are not significant threats to our spirituality, to our souls in religion too? Is it possible that religion can ferry a soul to hell just as effectively as irreligion? Today we come to this interesting story. Jesus is having this meal with these Pharisees. The Pharisees were, as you can probably tell, very, very religious people. These were the holy rollers of their day, extremely religious. Jesus has a meal with them. And, you know, in this story, I don't know whether to say, he just goes off. I mean, he, he launches. These are the most critical, cutting words from Jesus, I think, anywhere in the Gospel of Luke. This is when Jesus turns ugly on these people. He, he goes off. And what I find so interesting is that these uh, harsh words of censure from Christ are directed to the most religious people. Isn't that fascinating? So let's just look at the story. As Jesus attacks the danger of religion. Verse 37, When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noting that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. So uh, this is the kind of situation. Jesus is at this guy's house. He doesn't wash his hands. The guy's upset. You know, what's going on here? Is it that the Pharisees were kind of hypochondriacs? Were they into antibacterial soap? You know, what, what's with the hand? Why is this such a big deal? And this is one of these, you know, things where it really helps a little bit to have some historical background knowledge uh, to understand the Pharisees and the hand washing. Maybe some of you are very familiar with the Pharisees. Maybe you've heard lots of sermons in your life and you've heard who the Pharisees were. But just in, in case you weren't, let me just give you the quick bio on the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees were extremely devout religious people. They were the most um, prominent, or, or say, the largest sect within first century uh, Judaism in Palestine. So there's lots of different kinds of Jews in Palestine. There's always different little sects in every religion. This was the largest, the Pharisees. And they weren't necessarily the most influential in the sense that they didn't have necessarily the highest positions of power in society, but uh, they were influential and that they had the hearts and minds of the masses of people. People respected them because they were devout. And the Pharisees were from all walks of life. Some of them were, were some of the powerful priests and leaders in society. But a lot of them were just regular Joes. But they were united around a common vision. And their common vision was that they wanted Israel to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. They wanted Israel to be God's people. They remember what happened several centuries back when Israel went the way of the nations and God judged them and destroyed them. They didn't want that to happen again. So their whole thing was, we're going to keep God's law. We're going to do it right. We're going to be obedient to God's law. We're going to separate ourselves from the 
the encroaching forces of Hellenization and uh, of Gentile and Roman society that's always pressing in on us. And we're going to draw a line in the sand and we are going to be God's people. That sounds good, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you hear that? It's like, yeah. And so what they did was they, they obeyed God's law, but they also, and this is the key, they developed around what we would call the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament, around God's Word, they developed this increasingly large uh, body of teaching, of, of rabbinic teaching. It's called the oral tradition or the halakha is the actual name for it. And so there's a sort of membrane formed around God's Word to make sure that you kept God's Word. So, for instance, you know, uh, one of the Ten Commandments, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Don't do any work on the Sabbath, right? That's the law from God. But that wasn't good enough because the Pharisees were like, we've got to make sure we don't mess this up. So, you know, when is the Sabbath? When precisely does it begin? When precisely does it end? I want to know. And what does it mean to do work? And so they developed this whole, it's kind of like in, uh, those of you who are lawyers, it's like, you know, cases, in this sort of case history. There became all these teachings that were handed down and they sort of accrued and piled up. This rabbi says this and this rabbi says that and this rabbi says this about what that rabbi said. And so this whole huge body of opinions on what is the right thing to do and how to obey God's law just sort of developed over time. Uh, so that if you are a regular Jew and you're trying to figure out how to obey God, you could go to these people, these experts, and they would give rulings and opinions on how to keep God's law. So that's who these Pharisees were. Um, a good motivation, but somewhere along the way they got absorbed in all of these, I mean, just hundreds of rules and regulations and interpretations about how you should go about following God. Um, and one of them was hand-washing. And this hand-washing thing was kind of a symbol. It was like, we are so, we're going to be pure, we're going to be ceremonially clean before God. Essentially what they did is they took the, the hand-washing and cleanliness rules of the temple and they applied it to everyday life. So that they were going to be like the priests themselves. That's how holy they wanted to be. We're going to go the extra mile, we're going over the top. Like I said, religious people, very religious. And, and they even washed their hands as a symbol of their purity and devotion to God. And this was part of that oral tradition that I was talking about. So here's Jesus. He goes to this meal. He plops down at the table, you know, reclining. The, the formal dinners, they kind of laid down. Their feet were behind him, and the table's over here, and they sort of ate like this. So here's Jesus. He plops down. He doesn't wash his hands. It's you know, uncomfortable, awkward. Why isn't he washing his hands? And you can see this has nothing to do with hygiene. This is not about germs. I mean, they didn't know about germs back then. It wasn't part of their understanding. This was ritual. I don't know, maybe some of you grew up Roman Catholic. You know, sometimes you go to Roman Catholic church, there's a little thing of holy water. You know, dip your finger in it and you cross yourself. That's the idea. It's kind of a ritual cleansing. It's a ceremonial action. And Jesus didn't do it. Which really is intensely rude. I mean, if, if, it's hard to get back in the story here. But what Jesus is doing here is he's being a, an atrocious guest intensely rude. This is just so offensive. I mean, not only does he honor their practices, it would be like if an Orthodox Jew invited you to your house and you, for dinner and you came over with a plate of pulled pork and crab cakes. You know, I'm here. You guys want some crab cakes? They're really good. It's like, well, no, we're Jews. Come on. It's the same thing. I mean, Jesus just ignores this really important part of their tradition. It's very rude. But not only that, in a sense, by ignoring this specific tradition, which symbolizes, uh, in a way, the whole Pharisaic program, he's, he's kind of 
rejecting Pharisaism symbolically. It would be, I was trying to think of an analogy. I don't know if this works, but I'll just throw it out there and see what you think. But it would be kind of like if, if we invited a guest preacher here and he came and he had a big old cross necklace on, like major bling, huge necklace, but it was an upside-down cross. We'd be like, whoo! Is this guy from the Church of Satan? Like, who is this guy? Like, what's and I think that's what Jesus is doing. By not washing his hands, it was like turning Judaism upside down. And so everyone's freaking out, and it's really uncomfortable. And, and which raises the question, why in the world is Jesus being such a terrible, inconsiderate guest? I mean, why is he doing this? I mean, come on, Jesus. These are the religious people. It's not like you're eating with a bunch of thugs and brigands and prostitutes and tax collectors. I mean, you're with the holy rollers. Aren't these the guys on your team, Jesus? Isn't this what you're supposed to be? Religious and holy and devout? I mean, these are the guys who tithe and they pray and they fast and they go to synagogue and they study God's Word. These are the good guys, right? So Jesus, why, why would you be so rude? And I believe what Jesus is doing is he's doing something intentionally shocking in order to break through the pharisaical rule system that had been developed, the religiosity, to get to the heart of things. It's like in the Old Testament, I think, when um, uh, the prophets in the Old Testament, you remember, read some of that, they did these outrageous things, these crazy behaviors. They did these shocking things that would make the people like, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing that? And it was just to shock people so that they could have an opportunity to speak God's Word and get to the heart of the matter and cut through all of the, the religiosity that we use to protect ourselves from getting to the heart of the matter. And so Jesus, I think, is trying to shock them so that they'll listen. Uh, and, and what Jesus is doing, I believe, is He's putting His finger on the great danger of religion. The road to religion has this enormous sinkhole in it and millions of people pour into it like lemmings in every religion. I don't care if it's Christianity, Islam, Hinduism. It's just how sinful people do an approach to God, whatever, however God is conceived. We do it a certain way and it has a similar dynamic to it. And we go pouring into this sinkhole and Jesus is trying to point out that the Pharisees are leading the charge into the sinkhole. And what is the sinkhole? And I believe it is, as we shall see, hypocrisy. In other words, what I mean by that is a focus on the external, observable, ritual, behavioral, controllable aspects of religion to the neglect of the heart. True love for God. True love for people. The stuff that gets in your face and messes with your life. That's hypocrisy. To be dead on the inside, but to seem religious on the outside. Hypocrisy is the beautiful mahogany casket covered with roses. Smells good, beautiful woodwork, open it up, dead body. That's religion. It's an externalized kind of faith, but inside it's truly dead to God and it's full of evil. And so that's what Jesus says in verse 39. He explains his behavior. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, Clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. So that's really the issue here. How does one become clean before God? How do I get to a place where I am acceptable and right before God? So that in a sense I'm, I'm able to come into God's presence without fear of being defiled. That's what this all ritual cleanliness is about. 
And Jesus is saying that the Pharisees think it's just enough to do the external things, but not to clean out the heart. And so he kind of does a wordplay here. The Pharisees, in addition to washing their hands, they're really into washing their cups. It was part of the ritual cleansing. So he kind of like flips it around on them and he says, you're like a cup. You wash the outside, but the inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Right? You're standing there amazed that I don't wash my hands, but you're not aghast at what's inside your own hearts. And which is more important here, people? And so he's, he's getting at this hypocrisy in religion. You know, God, of course, you need both to be clean before God. Verse 40, you foolish people, did not the one who made the outside of the cup make the inside also? They both count. They're both important. But give what is inside the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you. In other words, now he's kind of changing the metaphor yet again. Now it's like a dish full of money and full of your treasures. And he's saying, if you really were clean, if you really loved God, you would care about people. You'd be concerned about the needs of people, not just about keeping a select set of rules and rituals. And then what he does is he goes on, and we have in verses 42 to uh, 52, six woe sayings. You see that verse 42? Woe to you Pharisees. Six times. Woe, woe, woe. What does that mean? Uh, well, the woe sayings were, in the Old Testament, they were like, basically, you're, you're cooked. <laughs> if the prophet stood up and said, woe to you, you were done. That was it. Uh, woe is the Hebrew word oi. Oi vey, right? You know, oi. And it's what you say. It, it's an onomatopoetic word. In other words, it, it, it sounds like what it is. It sounds like what you say when you're totally crushed and despairing inside. You say, oh, you know. It's, it's what you say at a funeral. I mean, not, we don't say that because we have very sedate funerals. But maybe you've seen Middle Eastern funerals. I mean, it's, I mean they just let it all hang out. And if you don't let it all hang out, you must not really be grieving. I mean, you know, they hit themselves and throw dust in the air and they flip out. And, and they yell and they scream. They just let it all out, all this grief. It's just expected of people. And so, that's the oi. Now, when a prophet says about you, oi, woe to you, that's really bad. <laughs> He's basically saying, you're as good as dead. I'm going to start the funeral now, okay? I know you're not dead yet. But it is so certain that God is against you. It is so certain that God is going to judge you that, you know what, I'm just going to kick off the funeral now. I might as well get started. Why waste time? Whoa, oh, I'm going to start grieving. So that's the point of a woe oracle. And they're in the Old Testament. And here's Jesus speaking as a prophet, though he's more than a prophet, but speaking as a prophet, pronouncing woe oracles on these uh, Pharisees. And so lest we think that this is just... No big deal that we're you know, talking about the minutiae of religion. This is life and death. What Jesus is saying basically is, you Pharisees, your religion is a freight elevator to hell. Except you don't know it because it feels like you're going up. But you're going down. Religion is the velvet-covered elevator to hell, is what religion is. At least the irreligious know they're going to hell and they've accepted it. You know, they'll tell you that. They're like, oh yeah, I know I'm going to hell. At least I'm going to party down there. But at least they admit it. They know they're rejecting God, but the religious think that they're okay because they've kept rule X, Y, and Z. And they have certain behaviors and parameters that they're following. And they don't realize it. So Jesus has to like, pow, shake it up. So that they realize, no, you're in the wrong elevator. Religion, the way you're doing it, isn't the answer. It's not making you clean before God. So let me just read a couple of those. I'm not going to go through them all. Uh, but I just want to give you a flavor of it. Look at verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. 
But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Uh, so, you know, these guys are big tithers. They're really into tithing. I mean, they tithe everything. They go home to their spice rack, you know, and pour out the stuff and figure out a tenth. And, you know, that's a tenth. And that's my, okay, so that's my time. And that's, you know, you're one-tenth of my time. And, you know, they, they divide up all their seeds. I mean, this is really focused tithing. These guys are great tithers. I would love to have them in my church. You know, they, they tithe <laughs> zealously and religiously. Um, but look, they're full of hatred and evil. They neglect justice, which is the love of man, and the love of God. <laughs> so like, what's the, I, don't, I don't care about your tenth if you don't love people. It's like when Jesus would heal someone on the Sabbath day in the synagogues and the Pharisees would all freak out because he did work on the Sabbath. It's like, man, this, this guy here had this you know, problem for you know, ten years and now he's healed and you're upset because I did it on the Sabbath? You're missing justice and the love of God. You're missing the whole forest of true Christianity because you're looking at the trees. Not even the trees, you're bark people. You're so close to the bark, you're just... How much do I tithe? And it's like, you're missing it. Now the problem, of course, with this approach to religion, which we all take, it's instinctive, it is what we do, is that it leads to boasting and pride. Always does. It leads to self-righteousness. Verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. They love to be noticed for how righteous they are. Anytime I start getting it right by my own standards... I always get cocky about it. It just, it happens. You start doing the right thing, you're like, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> What's wrong with him? I figured it out. Why can't he figure it out? You, know, you just become self-righteous. And you start walking around and, you know, I mean, you know, hey, Reverend, hey. Yeah, hi. Mm, yeah, it's me, I'm the pastor. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it just, it gets in you. It's, it's sickening. It's, it's who I am. I am a sinner and I, I take religion and I use it as a pretext for self-aggrandizement. We always do this. Um, it's inherent to our natures. And so, of course, Jesus is exposing this. He's exposing religion for what it is, that it cannot save, that it is a way of supposedly being clean before God, but in reality it just reveals how dirty we really are. Um, I like what uh, Spurgeon said, Charles Spurgeon. I was got to quote Spurgeon at some point. He said, I have found in my own spiritual life that the more rules I lay down for myself the more sins I commit. It's so true. It's just more opportunities to break the rules, which is what I do instinctively. Now, as you can imagine, this is offending people. Some people are uncomfortable because of what Jesus is saying. So verse 45, one of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you uh, say these things, you insult us also. So now we have a second group who's there with the Pharisees. They're the teachers of the law. And they're a distinct group, though most of the teachers of the law were also Pharisees, though not all of them. There were some teachers of the law who weren't Pharisees, but the groups overlapped a lot. And who are the teachers of the law? They're basically the guys who made up the rules that the Pharisees followed. There had to be someone making all these rules and interpretations. And so when they didn't know what to do, they'd go to the teachers of the law. They were like lawyers, except they were religious lawyers, or maybe not even lawyers, more like judges, actually. They would make judgments and determinations about what was right and what was wrong. And so you have these lawyers, and they're the ones who are the think tank pumping out all these rules that all the other people are trying to keep, and it's not working. Verse 46, Jesus replied, and you experts of the law, you want some of this? Fine. Okay, woe to you. 
Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. These rules are crushing people. Verse 52, Woe to you, experts in the law. You've taken away the key to knowledge, and you yourselves have not entered and have hindered those who were entering. This is a huge warning to anyone who is a Bible study teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a preacher, a theologian, a professor, that as we take on the mantle of teacher, it's terrifying. Am I helping people get in through the door? Are the things I'm saying facilitating people coming to God? Or am I twisting it and closing the door so that I don't go in and no one else can go in either? It's a really uh, stark challenge for those of us who would claim the role of teacher in some way or feel called to that role. And so when Jesus left there, verse 53, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Jesus named the elephant in the room. He broke down all of the hypocrisy and he said, look, you major on these minor little things, some of which are from the Bible, a lot of which you made up. And you've neglected the whole essence, which is righteousness and holiness, loving God, loving your neighbor. You've missed the whole thing. So woe to you. You're in the velvet elevator going to hell. You're going down. It's over. You're as good as dead. Let me start the funeral now. Woe. And he he kicks into it. This is what human beings do with religion. And so Jesus warns us, chapter 12, verse 1, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, here we go, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That fundamental hypocritical dynamic of seeming religious but being truly ungodly on the inside and in your life is the yeast and it spreads and it infects and it puffs up and it works in our lives. Jesus isn't worried that the disciples are going to become Pharisees. He's worried they're going to become like Pharisees in that they will practice a kind of hypocritical religiosity, which we're all prone to. Uh, We all do it. Like I said, I believe this is a human thing. This is found in every kind of religious system, including Christianity. Uh, We've experienced it in different ways. Some of you have experienced it. Uh, being members of high church traditions. Maybe you've been a part of traditions like that, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Anglican. You know, you have really liturgical traditions where there are lots of um, vestments and candles and icons and statues and there's a liturgy to the Mass or a liturgy to the service and, and you can memorize it. You know, there's certain prayers, there's a certain order, you do this, you do that, you learn to say this, you learn to say that and you go through the whole thing and, and, you know, it doesn't take long, but you can memorize all the parts. So it's like when I was a little kid and I was saying the Pledge of Allegiance in school. And I Pledge of Allegiance. And sometimes I'd get on the Pledge of Allegiance, I wouldn't even know what I said. It just comes out. In my mind, I was thinking about something else. I was thinking about, you know, playing after school or something. And so it's possible in a very ritualized, liturgical kind of thing to just go through the motions of it. And you get out the other side and you're like, I don't even know what I did. I don't even know what this means. What does this have to do with anything? And so there's this great disc. There can be, there can be a disconnect between the liturgy and the ritual and real life. I, I was at a wedding yesterday, actually a wedding I performed, and um, I was talking to this guy afterwards. Some guy I met, hanging out with him, older guy, 
He was a part of one of these more high church traditions. He says, you know, I'm so disillusioned. He says, I don't even go anymore. He says, I don't know what it means. He says, this is all I've known and, and I, I don't know what it means. He's like one of these guys who's near the end of his life and he's not gotten in the door because it's been close to him. Because he's kind of gotten lost in this membrane of tradition and he never got to the real heart of things. No one showed him the way in. And he says, I don't go. He says, I'm, a, I'm seeking. And, you know, it just broke my heart. I'm like, you know, a guy your age who's been as religious as you are, you'd think you'd be one of the shepherds who was reaching out to other people and bringing other people in. But he's like, I'm lost. He told me, he says, I'm still searching. I don't even know what I'm searching for. I was like, that's just messed up. Um, unfortunately, we evangelical Protestants don't have this problem. <sighs> When you're a Baptist, you're immune from this whole dynamic. So it's the great thing about being a Baptist. This never happens to us. I mean, we, because, you know, we don't have icons on the walls and statues, and we have the cross, but that's okay. But, you know, we don't have any of that stuff. And so clearly we are safe uh, from all religiosity and, and all of that traditionalism, you know. Uh, yeah. Hey, come on. Do you tithe? I hope you do. I tithe. And frankly, I get pretty smug about it. You know, it's so easy to start thinking, well, well I, I look at my checkbook. I've, I've given pretty consistently this year. I'm, I get my year-end statement from the church. I'm like, wow, look how much I gave. Wow, that's impressive. I didn't know I was giving that much. Wow, Whew, that's a lot of money. <laughs> well, I hope this church listens to what I have to say if I'm giving money to it. Just, right? I give money, therefore I have a voice. We just get into this self-righteous mindset. You know, uh, one of the things Protestants uh, and evangelicals base, you know, our badge is, our identity is the Scriptures. We go by the script. This whole thing this morning has been a Scripture lesson, right? But that's good. I mean, I'm all, I'm devoted to the Scriptures. This is the Word of God. We need to base our, our beliefs on what this says and not just on human tradition. But even, it's kind of, it can become like a bibliology where, where you worship the Bible and worship studying the Bible. You know, like, oh, yeah, I study the Bible a couple hours every day. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually in two Bible studies now, and I lead three. And, uh, you know, we're studying Revelation. You wouldn't understand it. it uh, if you were in my study, you'd understand it. But, obviously, you can't because you're not. Um, you, know, you know, we just... And I know where... The, do, you know, do you know where, uh, you know, Zechariah is? Can you find it? I can find it really fast if you can. I'll tell you what page it's on. You know, so there's this whole... This pride in being Bible experts. Great! Study the Bible. But you know what Jesus said? Blessed are those who not only hear the, my words, but put it into practice. If I don't do it, and if I'm not loving God as a result of studying the Bible, and if I'm not learning to love you, and I don't give a rip about people who are hurting, then you know I might as well be studying you know, the Satanic Bible, or might as well be studying, I don't know, cartoons, or I don't know what. Study something else. But, but this book is about having a transformed life through this book. It's a living book. And I think we can fall into that. And of course, there are instances where Protestants, you know, are, say, you can't drink, you can't smoke, and, you know, okay, great, so you're not a drunk. But, but are you drunk on power? Are you drunk on bitterness? Are you drunk on self-righteousness, or lust, or greed? I mean, you know, there's lots of things you can be drunk on, filled up with that control you, just like alcohol controls you. I'd rather be a chain smoker who's learning to love Christ and love my neighbor. Because you know, God will eventually help me with my chain smoke, I think. But then to be someone who's never smoked in my life, but uh, who's just a total pompous hypocrite. I mean, what's the point? 
those are the important things, is, whether, is love for God and love for others. That's true religion. Um, you know, one of the things I think we just can do in evangelical churches that, that keeps that, that superficial exteriorness, and this isn't really a ritual, but it's more like, I don't know, it's kind of like a cultural thing, is we can just operate under the assumption that uh, as evangelicals who are born again, we therefore really have no more significant issues in our lives. We can't really go through problems because I have Jesus in me and therefore... You know, I'm an evangelical, so and I'm saved, and I'm born again. And I have Jesus living in me, and He's in my heart, and all that stuff. And so, therefore, I can't really get clinically depressed. And you know, I can't go through a divorce. And I can't struggle still with alcoholism, or I can't struggle with homosexual impulses. Or uh, I, I can't fall into despair. You know, evangelicals who have Jesus in their heart can't have suicidal thoughts. And so when people in our midst who claim to be born again in all this start having really big challenges in their lives like that, you know, we don't know what to do with it sometimes. We can be like, uh, and we don't ever say this, but it's almost like, could you go and go to a therapist and take care of that? And when you're fixed, come back, because we don't really know what to do with it. Real brokenness among those who claim to love Jesus. And you know, aren't we sinners saved by grace? And yeah, I'm saved, but, but isn't there all kinds of stuff that I still have to work through as a Christian? But, and so I want to make sure that as a church, we're a place where doubts and hurts and brokenness can be aired and healed. Uh, and that means we can't be externalized. I'm fine, I'm great, i got Jesus in my heart, everything's fine. You know, God and SUV, it's all good uh, kind of mentality. We have to be willing to be open. But it's just what we do. I, I was in VBS this week, and uh, it was great. I had, I had a group of uh, seven fourth-grade boys. These boys were great. Really good group. I had so many great opportunities to talk to them about the gospel. We had some great religious conversations about Christ and the, open the scriptures and studying it together. It was just a wonderful week. What a, what a privilege. But one time we were talking about heaven. Heaven came up. And so uh, I wanted to know how these boys understood salvation. So I said... Well, tell me, guys, how do you get to heaven? Boy says, you have to die. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, you have to die. Granted, okay, good point. Um, that's right, you're still very literal, I forgot. Uh, but what I mean is, you know, what do you do in your life so that when you die, you can be sure that you go to heaven and not to the other place? They're like, H-E double hockey sticks? I'm like, right, H-E double hockey sticks, right, that's... The, you know, they didn't even want to say hell because it was like a dirty word. So, the, so yeah, okay. So how do you make sure that when you die, you don't go to H-E double hockey sticks and you go to heaven? And what do you think they said? Be good. Say your prayers. Read the Bible. Do good things. Believe in God. Whatever, you know, kind of a general statement. I'm like, you guys, you're just... How, how did you learn religion? They don't, you don't have to be taught it. It's just... Within our souls, it's who we are. We instinctively think that the way to be clean before God is by doing whatever the list is that you think the list is. And we make that list, and frankly, it's usually a very manageable list. It's usually something that works for me. <laughs> it's usually something that I'm not inclined to, right? And so I, I don't do that. Yeah, I've never murdered anyone. Okay, I guess I'm good. So I've never killed anybody. So we make this list that we fit into sort of naturally that matches our upbringing or whatever, and we think that that's how we get to God. 
but I hope you can see that Jesus has just taken a sledgehammer to religion. He's just smashed it before our eyes. He says, yeah, you know, last week we saw irreligion can't save, certainly. But religion is equally destructive to the soul. So how can we be clean before God? How can we come to God? And the good news is, there's a third way. It is not irreligion. It's not religion. It's the Gospel. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is something completely different. The Gospel is that God came to clean me through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. And there's no amount of this I can do with any rituals or behaviors that can clean me. You can't be clean through religion or sacraments or confirmation or listening to my sermons. We can only be clean through the blood that Jesus shed. And the way we appropriate His salvation is simply by faith alone. Not through rituals, not through behaviors, it's through faith. And so the Gospel is very different. The Gospel starts with me coming to God, not saying, look at my resume. It comes with me, starts with me coming to God saying, I am a broken sinful person. I haven't kept the little rules. I haven't kept the big rules. (laughs) I haven't done all the little tiny religious things. And you know what? I haven't loved my neighbor. I don't even like my neighbors. I I haven't loved God. I I haven't done the the huge things. I am a sinful person. I, I heard this story, sort of a once upon a time story, about a man who had a vision, a dream, and, and in the dream he met this angel. And this angel showed him this book of his life, and he opens the first page, and it's this big white page with black words all over it. And the man said, what's that? The angel said, this is a record of every wicked thing you've ever done. The man was like, whew. The angel turns to the next page. This, this page has even more words, and the words are smaller, and they're packed in, and it's even closer together. He says, what's that? He says, this is every wicked thing that's ever passed your lips. Hurtful thing you've said, every lie you've told, every white lie, everything. The guy's like, whew. Turns to the next page. And now you can tell their words, but they're so small that you could read them without maybe a big magnifying glass. And the page almost looks dark because it's so filled with words. And the man says, what's that page? And the angel says, this is every wicked thing that's ever gone through your mind. This is everything you thought and imagined and wanted to do and fantasized about. And then he turns to the last page. It's just black. And the angel says, that is your heart. That's where it's all coming from. And so we have to come to God not as self-righteous, religious, decent suburbanites. We have to come to Him and say, God, I know that I am a sinner who deserves judgment. But then we need to come to Christ and say, but I also believe, Jesus, that You're a merciful Savior, that You came to die for sinners, and that Your blood can save me. And that's the Gospel. The good news is that God saves us when we can't save ourselves. And that God reaches into our lives and saves us. And so anyone here, I don't care what your history is, you may have done some stuff in your life that you think, I am the most dirty person. I'm amazed the roof didn't fall on me when I walked in this morning. I'll tell you what, the blood of Christ can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Jesus can save you from whatever it is. You just have to come to Him. That's the only way that God has given us to be clean is through faith and trust in the blood of Jesus alone, through faith in Him by grace is how we're saved. And you know, this is a good word for us who are Christians too because I think that the Gospel message 
is a daily antidote that we must take against the poison of religiousism. Because even as a Christian who believes the gospel, it's like a bad alignment in my car. I just go right in the ditch. <laughs> I just go right back to works, right back to religion, right back to Pharisaism. And so I have to meditate upon the gospel daily. One of the things I like to pray when I'm praying is, God, teach me the gospel. Let it just get in me and get rid of all the self-righteousness and self-justification that's in me. And let me be justified by Christ in His righteousness, not my own. And, just, and, and as that gospel seeps into us, what will happen is we will lead a good life, but it won't be because I'm trying to lead a good life. It'll be because I'm just so full of the joy of my salvation. And so my life is a thank response to the gospel rather than something I'm trying to do to be clean before God, whether I acknowledge it or not. I think I told this story a couple of years ago, but it's a good story. I'll just close with this. Uh, John Wesley, maybe you heard John Wesley, famous uh, evangelist in the 18th century, started Methodism, the Methodist church, sort of grew out of his ministry and, and uh, Whitfield's ministry. But Wesley uh, was traveling one night on horseback, and as the story goes, he was uh, held up at gunpoint by a highwayman who was robbing him and said, give me all your money. And So Wesley gave him his money. And the guy's walking away. Wesley says, oh, I forgot to give you something. So the thief turns around and is like, what? <laughs> and, and Wesley says, I just want to give you this, that someday you may regret the life you've chosen. And you may despair. And he says, I want you to always remember this. The blood of Jesus cleanses from all unrighteousness. And the, the guy went away. And as apparently the story goes, you know, like decades later when Wesley was an old man and near the end of his ministry, this old man came to him at one of his meetings sobbing. He says, do you remember me? I was the thief. I believed in Christ and he has saved my soul. It is Christ's blood and Christ's righteousness that makes us clean before God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would save us from unbelief and even more that you would save us from religion. That you would save us, God, from that novocaine to the soul that causes us to think that we're okay when in reality, Lord, we don't even know you. We don't even walk close to you. God, we don't want substitutes. We don't want some hypocritical religious substitute. We want to know the living God. We want to be in a vibrant, living relationship with You, Jesus. We want to be changed. We want the Word of God to transform our lives, to make us into a different kind of people. And so, Lord Jesus, do the work that You have to do. I pray for those here who may think that they are religious or okay or good enough. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that in Your kindness, You would smash their religiosity that You would cause them to despair of whatever religion they have trusted in up to this point, and that they would look only to You, Christ, as their Savior, and that they would know You and be forgiven and be saved. And Lord, for those of us who do know You, Jesus, I pray, protect us daily, sometimes hourly, from the poison of religiosity, of externalism and ritualism. Lord Jesus, make us a sincere people whose interior life leads to our exterior life. We pray all this through your name, Jesus. Amen. I think the praise team has a closing song for us. Would you stand and let's sing together.
Let's worship together. Thanks be to God. There is nothing that we can do of ourselves to save us, but it's uh, only through the power of the Lord's love for us. So let's declare that together. Lord, I come to you. Let my heart be changed.